Well, good morning, Gateway Taze Valley. How's everybody today? Wonderful. Wonderful. Amen. It's good to be here. Amen. I love that last song that the, the band just led us in. And, you know, it is such an honor to be here today worshiping the King of King and Lords of Lord. You know, you guys are always so friendly to me when I come here, and I appreciate that. This is a very friendly group of people, and it's always a privilege to be here. And we're going to continue our sermon series today on the book of James, which is a small book, but a very practical book. Y'all like the book of James? It's probably one of my favorites, if not my favorite, because I like to be told what I need to do, and then I want to be told how to do it, right? And I don't want a lot of uh, ambiguity there. I just want to know. And James does a good job at being very practical. And we've been talking each week about having and exercising this faith that works that James writes about. And aren't you glad to have a faith that works this morning? We don't have a dead faith. We have a faith that works. It's a faith that works, we've said, when troubles and trials come our way. It's a faith that works when we deal with all kinds of temptations. It's a faith, James says, that works when you and I as believers actually put it into practice. And today we're going to look at James chapter 2. And we're going to look at another way that our faith works. And we're going to cover James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 this morning. And this morning, we're just going to let the scripture, the text of the scripture, preach the message. Okay? You know, sometimes as preachers and definitely as lawyers, and you got both in front of you today, I'm sorry about that, but sometimes preachers and lawyers tend to analyze things to death, right? Maybe beat a dead horse. You ever been around somebody that beats a dead horse? Well, today, we're going to just open up the scripture and we're going to go where it leads us. And we have an outline to follow along with the scripture and I'm going to give that to you now. Here's the outline. We're going to look at one primary command. We're going to look at two practical examples. We're going to look at three rhetorical questions. And we're going to look at four very powerful words. So you ready to get started? All right, here we go. One key command, we find that in James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. So what's the command? To show no partiality. James is saying if we want a faith that works out there, we can't be showing partiality among other people. And of course, partiality means to uh, favor a person or a group of people over another person or another group of people, maybe based on their identity, maybe based on their skin color or their economic status or the position they hold. And so, We are familiar with being rejected as human beings sometimes, right? I remember, it might surprise you to look at me, but I'm not very good in sports, okay? It's not what I was meant to do. It's not what I'm good at. I have other talents in other areas, but sports has never been my thing. So in gym class, when it was time to choose teams, where do you think I was usually chosen? Dead last most of the time. Now, I didn't care because I didn't want to be there in the first place. I'd rather go read a book. But that's, you know, it was a rejection. And we're all familiar with what it means to be rejected. And if you're paying any attention in our society, you know that in our culture today, partiality, showing partiality, is a big problem. It happens. 
And, je- and this problem plays out when maybe people are treated good or bad based on certain characteristics. And it plays out as in the form of prejudice or bigotry or discrimination or racism. And James is saying to the believers in his original letter, the audience there, and to us today, don't do those things as God's people. Why? Because it's hurtful and it's harmful and it's shameful and it's sinful. There is no place for that among God's people. Why is partiality or showing partiality a sin? Well, first of all, because it does not reflect the character of God Himself. It just doesn't. We read in our focus this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, which says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And Paul says this a lot in the New Testament. But one area where he says it very clearly is Romans 2.11, where he says, For God shows no partiality. Now there was a time when Paul had to confront the Apostle Peter about his bias or his prejudice toward the Jews and against the Gentiles. You see, in the first ten chapters of the book of Acts, you see that Peter was a missionary for Christ, But he was ministering to the Jews. And then in the rest of Acts, you see Paul was also a missionary, but he was ministering mostly to the Gentiles. And so Peter was converting Jews to Christ, and Paul was converting Gentiles to Christ, and they were working on the same team, but they were dealing with different audiences. And Paul, in Galatians 2, describes what Peter was doing. He says in Galatians 2, verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, this is our James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, the Jewish converts, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy." You guys ever had a friend, I'm taking you back to maybe high school or middle school drama, but have you ever had that friend that can be your friend when it's just you, but then when another friend comes along, they turn their backs and can only be friends with that other person, right? We all have had that, and maybe we still deal with that. You deal with that from children all the way through adulthood. That's on a grander scale what Peter was doing. He was fine with the Gentiles, but when the Jewish people came around, well, he couldn't pay attention to them anymore because he had to focus on the people he preferred and, and show partiality there. And Paul confronted him and said, what you're doing here is wrong. And it's wrong because it's against God's nature. It's sinful. But also, what happened to Barnabas in the text we read? We're told he was led astray. So when we show partiality as God's people, not only is it wrong and against God's character, but it also can have consequences that affect other people and maybe their relationship or the absence thereof with Christ. And what's our job? Our job is to bring people to Christ, not drive them away. Amen? Amen. So we see in Acts chapter 10 later that it took a heavenly vision and a buffet of a lot of food. I'm sure those words sound good. Lunch is right around the corner, I promise. So it took a heavenly vision, a buffet of food, and God's voice directly talking to Peter to make Peter realize he was acting sinfully toward the Gentiles. And thankfully, Peter learned his lesson. He learned and he said in Acts chapter 10 verses 34 through 35, 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. So in James chapter 2 here, James is saying it doesn't matter who you are or who you're dealing with, partiality, discrimination, bias, racism, these things do not reflect God's character and they should never exist among God's people. Because every person matters to our God. But the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, does every person matter to us? Or do we just tend to focus on and show love toward the people who look like us, the people who act like us, and the people who meet our expectations? You know, I'm trained to look for the gray area in things. There's no gray area here, church. God minces no words on this issue. He said, we're told in 1 Peter 3, 9, God wants no one to perish, but all should reach repentance. And we're told in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So James here, at the very beginning of chapter 2, is telling us that if we want to have a faith that works, then we cannot be showing partiality out there. Then he goes on to provide us with two very practical examples to apply this commandment. I'm going to tell you a story about a preacher who was brand new to his congregation. He'd only been there a few weeks. And he got up early one Sunday morning and he put on some dirty and smelly clothes and he got a fake beard and a wig and he made sure they were dirty and disheveled. And he took a can of beer and poured it all over himself and let it dry. He got some pop cans and some trash and put it into a shopping cart. And a few minutes before church was to start, he pushed the shopping cart up to the building and All the members were standing and looking out the window thinking, what in the world is this, right? You ever ask yourself that question, what is this about? That's what they were asking. So the preacher left the cart outside. He walked into the the front door there, and he looked around, and he stunk. The smell was noticeable. And everybody noticed him, but they didn't recognize who he was. And they all pretended to be engaged in conversations with each other so they wouldn't have to deal with him. And So he stood there for a few moments, and then he walked into the auditorium, and he sat down in the very back row, and no one spoke a word to him. They wouldn't even dare make eye contact with him. And then a few moments later, some ushers came over, and they said, hey, buddy, you got to get out of here. You got to go right now. So without saying a word, the preacher got up and walked out the front door. He walked around to the back of the church building, to the back door, and that door led directly onto the stage. And he stood there at the door and he listened for the service to start. And it started on time just like it had every week. And they sang a few songs and had some prayers. And the members had been so preoccupied with this dirty stranger, they had no idea their new preacher was missing. So when it came time for the sermon, they're nervously looking around thinking, okay, where's our preacher? What's going to happen? And the guy let a few moments of silence pass as he stood there at the door. And finally he opened the door, walked onto the stage, He stood behind the podium, and he read these words. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while to the poor man you say, stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's James chapter 2 verses 2 through 4. 
James is giving us two practical examples to apply this primary command that we not show partiality. And he's talking about a scenario of two men who are coming to the church, coming to the church assembly. And they're faced with the same issue we are all faced with every time we walk through those doors. And you know what that issue is? Where are we going to sit? Don't you ask yourselves that question each week when you come through? Where are we going to sit? Chances are you're sitting where you sat last Sunday and the Sunday before that and the Sunday before that because we have our church seats, don't we? And sometimes people get pretty upset if you're in their church seat. I know when I was here last month, it was the first time I was here, and I asked the band, I said, am I okay sitting here because I don't want to sit in someone else's seat? And, of course, they reminded me, you're in the front row, and no one ever wants to sit on the front row. So I was okay there. But preachers can pretty well predict where folks are going to sit. These two men, though, we get the impression they're met at the door before they ever get in. And there's a big difference between these two men, a big visual difference. One man has money, and one man is dirt poor. And James, remember the audience, the original audience, are scattered Christians who are homeless, had to leave their homes because of their faith, and they're being persecuted against, and many of them have died, and they're, they're, they're still preaching the word everywhere they go. So why would these people treat a rich man better than a poor man? Probably for the same reasons we do in our culture today because they believe the rich man could do something for him, right? With the rich man comes power and influence. The rich man can help us pay for our budget and our programs, and the poor guy, he really can't do much to help with those things. You see, in the first century, there was no middle class. You were either very wealthy or you were very poor. And most of the time, you could tell that based on how people dressed. So that's the example James uses, a rich man and a poor man, as to how partiality could play out. When the rich man comes in, you give him the best seat, which for us would be in the very back of the room, right? You guys are in prime real estate back there. That's the best seat in the house. And that's where you might tell the rich guy to sit. But the poor guy, he might be right up front here or down at our feet, the scripture says. That's all you get. James says this is discrimination. This is showing partiality. You're treating one man good because he's got money and you're treating another man bad because he doesn't. Now, I don't think this means that there aren't times when preferential treatment is, is due. If you go to the mall and you look at the, you drive around the parking lot, you might see signs, preferential parking signs, right, for handicapped folks, maybe expecting mothers or young families, maybe for members of law enforcement or uh, the military or veterans, and we're, we have no problem with those things. You, you know, if you're in a crowded room and there's only a few seats and a person walks in who's having trouble getting around and you're healthy, you might get up and give them your seat. That's all a good, those are all good things. You know, if we got word that the president or the governor was going to come to our service, we'd probably make some very special arrangements, and all that's biblical. You see, in 1 Peter 2.17, we're told to honor the king. We read in Romans 13.7 to give honor to whom honor is owed. And Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So there's times preferential treatment is okay, but discrimination and prejudice based on all these things the world uses to divide us is never okay in God's family. That's what James is telling us. And he gives us these examples because evidently first century Christians were dealing with the same issues we deal with today, right? 
1965, President Johnson signed a bill into law known as Affirmative Action. And this law was enacted to make sure institutions complied with what was called the non-discrimination mandate found in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So in essence, this was a law to make sure that another law was followed. And the goal was to reverse and hopefully eliminate discrimination against minorities and women who'd been discriminated against in employment issues, certain selection and admissions to universities, and other issues. And affirmative action is not a bad idea, and there's still more work to do, but it's unfortunate that a law like this had to be enacted, right? But that's our world. That's the world we live in. We live in a world that shows partiality. And while laws like this may be necessary in our culture, they should never be necessary in God's church. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. That's a good amen too, by the way. Because it's true. You see, we can't be showing partiality and being discriminatory. And we certainly can't do it based on economic conditions. God has never, ever been impressed with a bank statement. And guess what, church? He never will if you believe his word, right? In fact, Jesus says it's going to be harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does Paul say in 1 Timothy 6.10? He says, the love of money is what? The root of all kinds of evil. And he goes on to say, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, James gives us a primary command. He gives us two very practical examples as to how to apply that command. And then he goes on in this passage with three rhetorical questions. Now, what's a rhetorical question? It's a question that's asked not for an answer, but it's a question asked to make a point. So I'm going to give you all some free legal advice here this morning. Guys, if your wife asks you a rhetorical question, do not answer it. It is a trap, right? We don't answer rhetorical questions. They're asked to make a point. That's what James is doing here. here. He says in James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, there's three questions. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And of course, James assumes the answer to each of these questions is what? Yes. Yes, God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. Yes, the rich are the ones who are oppressing us in the courtroom. Yes, it's the rich who are blaspheming the name of Christ. And so question one, remember James is writing to mostly poor people. Very few of these people who were scattered were wealthy. And he's basically saying, God didn't play favorites when he made the gospel available to you. The gospel is available for rich and poor and everybody in between. But in the Old Testament, we read about Abraham and Job and Solomon and a bunch of other folks who were very wealthy, right? And even in the New Testament, we read about Matthew and Zacchaeus who followed Jesus and they were probably wealthy because they were tax collectors. And Nicodemus seems like he also has money. But most early Christians were poor, hardworking people. And James is writing to them. Is it not the poor who God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? 
Then on question two, James is reminding them about how the rich people of their day use their money to tilt the scales of justice in their favor. And that doesn't happen today anymore, right? Right. You see, only the rich could afford a lawyer. That's why the contingency fee, which was originally known as the success fee, was created a few hundred years ago. Those people on TV advertising about it didn't create it. It's been around for 200 years. And that's the arrangement where your lawyer only gets paid if they are successful and win your case. That's the kind of work that I do. And if you think about it, if someone's hurt in like a car accident, they don't have money to pay a lawyer to represent them, so they would either be unrepresented or the contingency fee is, is an option. And so the contingency fee didn't exist in James's day. So in the courtroom, the poor people were unrepresented, which means they mo- almost always lost. These are the people, James says, you're wanting to show preferential treatment to? And then on question three, he says, highlights the fact that it's many of the wealthy class that mocked Jesus and actually looked down on and made fun of believers because they believed in Christ. So each of these rhetorical questions are being asked to highlight the hypocrisy of the believers who were being mistreated by the very people they were showing partiality to in their assemblies. Why would they do this? Well, because we said earlier, Maybe they thought they could benefit from the wealthy people by their actions. But their hearts weren't right, church. And you could tell their hearts weren't right because their actions revealed it. So James asks three rhetorical questions, and then he goes on here through the rest of our text to talk about four very powerful words. And I'm going to read these words so we can watch for them as we read the balance of our text. The words are love, law, Judgment and mercy. Love, law, judgment, and mercy. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is giving us four powerful words here as to why as Christians we can't be showing partiality. And the first one is love. We already said that we don't show partiality because it doesn't reflect God's character. And you know what God's character is? 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. That's His character. Jesus told us that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, soul, and your mind. And the second, what's it? To love your neighbor as yourself. In our text, James refers to those commands as royal law. Now, we're not very familiar today with what it means to be under a monarchy, but we know that there's no law in the land higher than royal law. And that's what James is saying this is. It's the highest law. For God so loved us that He gave His Son to die for us. But guess what? He also gave His Son to die for the homeless man on the street. 
and for the drug-addicted lady in the alley, and for that mean and nasty neighbor that you can't stand, and for the holier-than-thou Christian that gets on your nerves, and for those annoying family members, and for the co-worker who takes credit for all your work. He sent his son to die for the people wearing suits all over the place. He sent his son to die for the wealthy people in Hollywood and everybody in between, whether we agree with them or not. Amen? Christ died for them too. Do we as believers act like we believe that? That's the humble question we have to ask ourselves. Because if we have a faith that works, then we're going to treat those people right too. You see, we know John 3.16. But do you know 1 John 3.16? It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Because of the love of God, we cannot show partiality and expect to have a faith that works. And the next word is law. James says that maybe we think we're better sometimes because our sins aren't as big as someone else's sin, right? I've never murdered anybody, but maybe I've told a lie that no one else knows about. Uh, maybe I've had lust in my heart towards somebody. You know, we tend to look at these sins and, and, and assign them as big or small or people know or people don't, but the reality is we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And James says, unless you've lived a perfect life, which none of us can do, then you're transgressors of the law. So James is saying, if you're treating people differently because their sins are bigger than your sins, then that's the wrong mentality. Because we all stand equally guilty before God. Zach Brown Band says, we're all in the same boat, fishing the same hole. You guys know that song? It's true. I didn't think you'd hear Zach Brown Band quoted from the pulpit this morning, but, you know, it works. But we're all in the same boat. We all deal with the same struggles and the same sins. They might look different, right? But they're all sin. We're all on the same journey to the cross, and we all need a Savior. So because of the law, we can't be partial to other people and show those, that partiality. And because we're all sinners, church, we all deserve judgment. That's the third word, God's judgment. But what we don't deserve is to be judged by each other. Because again, we're all dealing with the same sins and we're all in the same boat. And while I might see a speck in my brother's eye, I got a whole log jammed in my eye, right? So what we really need and what we really want, and James tells us the fourth word, is mercy. Are you thankful for mercy today? Me too. Mercy is a powerful word. You know, sometimes we look at the word grace and we say that grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that's certainly true because we get forgiveness. We get salvation. We get heaven. And we don't deserve any of those things. And we certainly can't get any of those things on our own merit. And sometimes we look at the word mercy and we say mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? Because we deserve punishment. We deserve hell. But God has mercy. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and I'm so thankful for this passage of Scripture, he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. If you're thankful for God's grace and mercy this morning, say amen. 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 That's right. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 18. He told a parable about a man who had racked up a large, insurmountable debt. A debt that could never be repaid in a thousand lifetimes. And I wonder how he got to this point, but that's what we're told. And what should have happened is if the man couldn't pay the debt back, which we know he couldn't, then he should have been thrown in prison, and his wives and children would actually, the law would say, would be sold into slavery. That's what should have happened. So this man goes before his master, and you know he's worried because he knows prison is in his future, and his family is going to be separated and treated cruelly. And he goes in and he pleads with his master, and he says, please forgive me. He begged for forgiveness. And you know what that master did? He forgave it. He wiped the debt off the books. This would be like Truist or Ohio Valley Bank calling you up tomorrow morning and saying, hey, you know that mortgage you have down here with us? That's wiped off the books. We're going to go ahead and get rid of that and just enjoy your house debt-free. Would you all like to have a call like that? I know I would. That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? And what, what, what would be your reaction to such a call? Well, you'd be thrilled, right? You'd be so excited and you, your heart would be full of gratitude and thanksgiving. What was this man's heart full of as he left his master's presence? Was he grateful for the debt that had been forgiven? And grateful for that new, fresh opportunity? No! He went out and he found a fellow servant who also owed him money, and he said, hey, pay me my money back. And this debt, we're told, is an amount that was still high, but could have been paid back over time. And the man says, hey, I can't pay you. Give me more time, please. And we're told he had him thrown into prison. And so when the master heard what had happened among his servants, he calls the guy in whom he'd just forgiven, and he says in Matthew 18, 32 through 33, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You know, it's possible this is one of the stories that James actually heard Jesus tell in person. And that could be the basis for him to insist in the book of James that people of Christ who'd been forgiven of so much sin, how they could never be found or should never be found showing partiality to other people who maybe don't have it all together like they think they do. But instead, it's our job as believers to try to look at everybody the way God looks at them. To look at them and realize they too have a soul that God wants to be saved. So what's our challenge for this week? Our challenge is, don't show partiality in here or out there. But be a godly example toward all people you come in contact with. Be busy showing them the love of Christ. Because that's how we have a faith that works. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you humbly this morning, thankful that in spite of all of our struggles and all of our flaws and all the things that maybe we don't understand, Father, we know you love us anyway. Lord, we know that you sent your Son to die in our place when we didn't deserve it. Father, we know we deserve the very opposite of what your promises say are in store for us as believers. God, I just pray that you be with us this week as we go out into out into our lives, whether it's work or school or 
any place we come in contact with other people, Lord, I pray that you help us have fresh eyes. Eyes that see other people that have souls that need to be saved. Eyes, Lord, that look at people the way you see them. The way your son sees them. And help us, Lord, to not be out there and, and dividing people and dividing situations as the world tells us we should. But help us, Lord, to realize we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And Father, if there are people that we come in contact with that don't know you, help us to have the words to say. Give us those opportunities to minister to them. And Lord, just uh, give us the heart that wants to see them know you. Father, I thank you so much for all the blessings we have in being your followers. Help us to be shining lights this week, not so that we're looked at, but so that people can see you and glorify you and come to know you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, I pray, and amen. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you'd like to talk about what that involves and what that looks like, we, we stand ready to talk to you about those steps. If you're here, you've never put Christ on in baptism. We're here to serve you that way. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but you're struggling with something or you've been away for a while, we want to be here to help you any way that we can because that's what we're here to do, right? We're here to encourage each other and love on each other because we all have, have it tough in one way or the other out there. But inside these walls, may we get refreshed, and renewed, and encouraged to be godly examples, to show other people how they can have the same peace and the same love in their hearts, regardless of what this world throws at us. If you're here today and you have a need, come talk to us as we say.